Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Howdy folks, Dominic here. This episode comes with a disclaimer about chronology. These events happened sometime in the late 14th century BCE between 1350 and 1300, give or take. I have gone with 1325 BCE, based on one study, but to be clear, the exact dates are uncertain. Scientific analyses can provide timelines, but scholars are always refining and updating their methods, so chronologies could change. It's not a big deal, but it's worth bearing in mind. In 1986, archaeologists were diving off the coast of Turkey. Working on an area just 250 metres square, they sifted through mud, sand, and ocean life. They were studying the wreck of an ancient ship, one that sank more than 3,000 years ago. Deep below the waves, off the coast of Uluburun, the archaeologists were studying a fascinating treasure. In the course of their work, a curious item came to light. Small, made of gold, the object glittered in the water. Examining it closely, the team found it was a scarab, an ornament shaped like a beetle and decorated with hieroglyphs. The scarab was Egyptian, one of many items from the wreckage that had African origins. But this scarab was special. On the surface, hieroglyphs recorded a name, Nefer Neferu Atin, Nefret Iti. This was the official name of Nefertiti, the legendary Queen of the Nile, and possibly Pharaoh in her own right. What was a scarab of Nefertiti doing off the coast of Turkey? Well, there be a tale to shiver your timbers. A tale that, ironically, is told by dead men. Around 1325 BCE, in the eastern Mediterranean, a ship set sail. It pulled away from the dock or anchorage and headed out to sea. The vessel headed north, hugging the coast, making for distant lands. The ship sailed from Canaan, somewhere in the region of Akko, or modern Acre. Archaeologists infer that from the construction of the vessel. The hull was cedar wood common in that area, and the anchors, heavy stone weights, were Canaanite in style. So we have the rough starting point for the voyage. As for the destination, this ship was heading west. The crew would sail along the coast of Anatolia, modern Turkey. They would pass the island of Cyprus, and eventually make their way to the Aegean. There, amid the islands, they would head for their destination. Alas, the ship never made it. 
A couple of weeks into the voyage, the vessel rounded a promontory. On the Anatolian coast, the ship was making its way past bays and cliffs. But as it sailed past the Cape of Uluburun, the vessel foundered. It may have strayed too close to the shore, or hit unseen rocks below the surface. Or perhaps a gale may have blown unexpectedly from the south, driving the ship to its doom. The wreck was swift. The vessel, made of wood, shattered and sank beneath the waves. Laden with cargo, the hull descended, trailing debris and objects as it went. Then, more than 40 metres below the surface, the ship came to rest. It lay on a slope, descending into the depths. And all around, the cargo spilled onto the seabed. If the vessel had a name, we do not know it. The ship itself was approximately 15 metres long, and about 5 metres at the widest part. Its draft, or depth, was approximately 1.4 metres. It bore a sail with a triangular shape that probably gave it speeds up to 2 knots, or 2 nautical miles per hour. Not especially quick by modern standards, but adequate for the job. This wasn't a racing vessel or a war galley, it was a trade ship. The vessel carried a sizable cargo, approximately 20 tons of material. At least half of that was copper, huge ingots of pure metal shaped like animal skins. These ingots, often called oxhide for the shape, are well known from artistic images, including some from Egypt. So the ship's copper stores were a common object for international traders. Beyond the copper, there was tin, valuable for making bronze. There was wood from Central and Eastern Africa. There was ivory from elephants and hippopotamuses, and eggshells from ostriches, a valuable commodity. There were resins, powders, and seeds. And there were jugs, ceramic vessels filled with small objects, like scraps of metal, organic items like food and plants, and spices including black cumin, coriander, and safflower. All of these items have shown up in the wreckage of the vessel. Archaeologists can identify them and reconstruct the cargo. Broadly speaking, the ship's goods were international in the best sense. All up, archaeologists have identified at least seven cultural groups in the wreck. There were objects from Canaan and Syria, where the vessel set out but also items from Egypt and Sudan, aka Nubia. Some objects came from Mesopotamia, the lands of Babylon and Assyria. There were even a few items from the Balkans, the lands north of Greece. Looking at the descriptions, the ship's cargo reads like a buffet of international items. Apparently, these traders were buying big, and they bought from everywhere. So the ship's cargo was large and valuable. It is hard to say how valuable exactly, but scholars have tried to calculate the overall cost. One estimate puts the value of the cargo around 12,000 silver shekels. That's ancient shekels, not the modern currency. This was significant. Roughly speaking, 12,000 shekels could have paid the yearly wages of 1,000 workers. So the vessel was carrying a huge load of goods. 
the traders must have been quite rich. Speaking of traders, who were these people, the crew of the vessel? Well, based on their objects, they were a mixed bunch. Some were Canaanites, specifically a group of merchants. At least four sailed on this vessel. Archaeologists can identify the merchants by their weights, small objects of metal used for trade. Weights are quite distinctive. They come in different shapes, and they mark denominations, or weights, of metal. The merchants could use those weights to measure goods, say, a quantity of spice, against a certain quantity of metal. Call it currency conversion. Call it bartering. Either way, the metal weights aboard the vessel seem to be Canaanite and Syrian. Based on the styles and their distinct groups, there were probably four merchants from that area. Again, this gives us a rough starting point for the crew of the ship. However, Canaanites and Assyrians were not the only travellers. At the time of its final voyage, the ship carried several foreigners, distinctive foreigners from a famous cultural group. This Canaanite vessel carried Mycenaeans. The Mycenaeans, or proto-Greeks if you prefer, were prominent in the eastern Mediterranean. Over the last two centuries, they had journeyed out into the islands of the Aegean and Mediterranean. They had occupied and ruled towns and palaces, in Crete and Rhodes especially. They had even formed a political centre in Anatolia, modern Turkey. That is the briefest of brief overviews, but you get the idea. By 1325 BCE, Mycenaeans were prominent and visible in the political and social world of the Eastern Mediterranean. So how do we know that Mycenaeans were on the ship? Well, they left a few clues. Two swords and ten spearheads appeared in the wreckage. These are bronze, with the distinctive style of Mycenaean weapons. Long blades, grooves along the length, and flanges or protruding hilts. These weapon designs are well known from Mycenaean archaeology, and they turn up at Uluburun. Beyond the weapons, there were ornamental items. Beads made of glass, amber, and faience. These are decorated with swirling patterns and figure-of-eight shapes. Again, those have similar examples from Mycenaean archaeology. There were also personal items like razors and tableware, including a wine cup or kylix. These artifacts are distinctive, and they give a clue to the guests. Apparently, the vessel carried at least two high-ranking Mycenaeans. They probably weren't merchants. There are no weights or measures in a Mycenaean style. Instead, they could have been diplomats, ambassadors traveling to overseas kingdoms. That is an educated guess. The Mycenaean travelers were clearly wealthy, with top-quality possessions. And if they were not merchants, the best guess would be warriors or representatives of a Mycenaean palace. I wish I had time to dive deeper into that. Alas, we must take the idea as it is. The vessel, sailing the eastern Mediterranean, may have carried individuals from a Mycenaean embassy. So an international crew with an international cargo. Sailing west on the Mediterranean, this group had left a port in Canaan or Syria. That's a good starting point. 
We know the ship's origins and its travellers. The next question is, where were they going? What was their purpose? And why did they have a scarab of Queen Nefertiti? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Riding the waves, a trade ship was sailing along the coast of Anatolia. On board, there were merchants from Canaan and Syria, and high-ranking individuals from Mycenae. The Mycenaeans were sailing aboard a ship laden with high-value items and journeying west. In the context, we could guess that they were heading for the islands, maybe Crete or Rhodes, or another Aegean centre. Or they may have been going further to mainland Greece, the homeland, quote-unquote, of Mycenaean power. Both of these options are possible. The ship was clearly sailing towards the Aegean. Then again, it's possible the ship was going north. At the time, Mycenaeans had settled or occupied centres along the coast, and they may have formed a kingdom in that region. The Mycenaean kingdom in Anatolia is a big story with many debates, so I won't go deeper right now. Suffice to say, Mycenaean settlements or populations appear on the Aegean islands and the coast of Anatolia. It's possible the vessel was heading to one of those places. The ship seems to be heading home. It had Mycenaeans aboard, and it was sailing towards the Aegean. With that in mind, excavators suggest that the vessel was returning from an embassy or diplomatic trading mission. Perhaps a Mycenaean ruler had dispatched this ship to gather items from distant ports. The diplomats, high-ranking individuals, could meet and negotiate deals with foreign rulers, say in Cyprus, in Syria, and Canaan. Then, when they had made arrangements and collected goods, they would head home, on a ship laden with treasures. That is an educated guess. There was no manifest or captain's log that survived. Nevertheless, a cargo of valuable goods, and some distinctly foreign people aboard a Canaanite ship. A diplomatic or commercial voyage seems quite likely. Presumably, these diplomats would have been well rewarded or praised on their return, with such an enormous cargo, equivalent to the yearly wages of a thousand workers, the delivery would have been lucrative. Arriving at their home port, the sailors could expect a warm welcome, recognition by their peers, and the thrill of a job well done. Alas, they probably didn't make it home. The wreck of the Uluburun ship did not preserve any human remains. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean the sailors escaped from drowning. The organic material, mostly, rotted away, decomposing in the water long ago. Only a few scraps preserved in the mud or traces left on pottery reveal the perishable organic items on board. Logically, if any people went down with the ship, their bodies probably vanished to time. 
so we can only speculate on the fate of these sailors. What we do know is there were personal items, like razors, weapons, weights, and measures, amid the wreckage. That might indicate that some of the sailors or crew went down, but they weren't necessarily carrying all of these items on their person. Weights and measures would likely be kept in a bag or a box, out of the way until they needed them. Warriors might carry their weapons at certain points, especially if there was danger about. But again, they wouldn't necessarily have them at all times. So although some personal objects appear in the wreckage, it is possible that members of the crew or the passengers escaped the sinking ship. Unfortunately, that is speculative. But hopefully, some people made it out. The vessel went down, taking many objects, and potentially people with it. Among the thousands of items, one in particular catches our eye. The scarab of gold, bearing the names of Nefertiti, the ruling lady of the Nile. What was that doing there? The Nefertiti scarab is interesting. For one thing, it is slightly out of time. The rough date of 1325 BCE puts the scarab 10 or even 20 years after Nefertiti died. Scientifically, that doesn't mean much. Late Bronze Age chronology is notoriously uncertain. Dates can vary by decades, depending which scholar you read. And even carbon dating, or dendrochronology from tree material, can give a range of dates, but nothing too definitive. So we can't read too much into the dates themselves. The scarab is more important as a mark of behaviour and trade relationships. Far from Egypt, a random merchant or diplomat was carrying this scarab in their possessions. Perhaps it was part of the cargo, a high-value item destined for some faraway palace. Whatever its purpose, the appearance of this scarab gives a hint at the behaviour of these people. Technically, the name on the scarab was out of date. But perhaps these people didn't care who was the king at that specific moment. Instead, the scarab itself was a prestigious keepsake. For one thing, the gold was valuable, and a good insurance policy if they ever got into financial difficulty. It didn't matter if the name was out of date, the ornament itself was worth more than that. Additionally, such a prestigious but slightly antiquated item tells us something about the trade networks. In the Late Bronze Age, goods flowed around the eastern Mediterranean, around Anatolia, Canaan, Syria, and beyond. Great kings and petty rulers exchanged items constantly. They dispatched gifts to one another, building relationships and securing agreements. And with all that diplomatic trade going on, we can imagine the sea and the roads were busy with caravans and ships. Merchants were everywhere carrying goods for royal households. Sometimes these merchants worked independently, on their own initiative. Other times, they acted as contractors, or even employees, of palaces and kings. That is a simplified description, but you get the idea. Late Bronze Age trade was international, and the stories that emerge from this period are fascinating. In 1325 BCE, give or take, a ship pulled out of the harbour, 
carrying a shipload of goods. Gold, ivory, high-quality wood, ornamental objects, and a huge supply of copper, all stacked within the hold. Among those treasures, several came from Egypt, and others had signs of Egyptian influence. The most distinctive item for this podcast is a scarab, a golden ornament bearing the names of Nefer Neferu Aten Nefertiti. The item is curious, but it gives a hint at the trade relationships connecting the wider world. Nefertiti was probably long dead when this ship sank beneath the waves. And yet, somebody on board had an ornament with her name. The item had probably travelled far and wide before it met its end at the bottom of the Mediterranean. This is a small introduction to the Uluburun shipwreck. I could have gone much deeper, diving to the very depths of the archaeological material. But that would be a heavy burden, and I didn't want to overload our voyage. Otherwise, we would risk foundering under the weight of so much information. So consider this a short journey into the fascinating tale of Uluburun. One day, I may find an opportunity to explore it further. If that happens, there will be ample time to explore the discovery, excavation, and remains of this fascinating vessel. For now, it is time to say bon voyage. The wreck of the Uluburun ship is a fascinating sight, with abundant artifacts and information about ancient life. If you want to read more about it, you can, in a wonderful book. Beyond Babylon, Art, Trade and Diplomacy in the Second Millennium BC is a delightful work with chapters on many aspects of ancient society. The book includes a full chapter on the Uluburun shipwreck and a catalogue of objects found in the wreck. I mention this because the book is available for free in PDF from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Follow the link in the episode description to download a copy and enjoy some amazing stories and high-quality pictures. It is well worth your time. That's all for today. I hope you've enjoyed this short tale of the ancient sea. Onwards to our next destination. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.